Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre here at King's College London. One of the themes we've been exploring in our current project on the political economy of knowledge and ignorance is the extent to which new technologies may or may not be able to address various informational or coordination problems, whether they can overcome some of the cognitive limitations of the human mind. We hosted Professor Diane Coyle, who gave a lecture on some of the advantages and pitfalls from using so-called big data. And I'm very pleased to say that Diane is here with us today on the Governance Podcast. Diane is a recipient of the CBE for contributions to the public understanding of economics and is the author of numerous books at the interface between economics and public policy. The most recent of which is Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, published by Princeton University Press. Diane is Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, where she co-directs the Bennett Institute. Diane, it's great to have you with us here today on the Governance Podcast. And before we get into the, the subject matter, I wonder whether you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, about how you ended up where you are today and how long you've had an interest in issues around technology and data. Uh, well, thank you very much for the invitation to join you on the podcast and talk about all of this, which has been an interest of mine for a very long time now. My first book about the digital economy, The Weightless World, was published 26 years ago. So I like to think I got into the debate quite early. And it came about because I was at that time a journalist and I've done pretty much every career you can do as an economist. I've worked in the Treasury, in the private sector, run a consultancy, done some public service roles, and in the past 10 years or so, I've been an academic. But at the time, it was journalism, and I was writing for The Independent, and they sent me as a cub reporter to cover some of the um, launches on the stock market. And one of them was a company called Unipalm, which was the first internet service provider in the UK to go on the stock market. And they had a a webcam set up in the hotel suite where they were doing the roadshow, showing the Golden Gate Bridge live. And I was just bowled over by this technology and started to get interested in it and started to specialise in the software sector. So I've been following it since then. And it touches on some really interesting areas of economics, you know, information, asymmetries of information, non-rivalry of goods, the boundary between public and private activities. So, you know, really some of the the big questions, as I suppose any profound technological change does, you know, economists call them general purpose technologies because they're so, they've got so many uses. So that's how I got into it. And I've kind of kept the specialism in digital ever since in different areas. So thinking about competition policy has been one area, but increasingly thinking about the overlap with law, governance, you know, and hence, hence my interest in, in coming to talk to you about the governance aspects of data. That's great. So in the, the lecture that you gave a couple of weeks ago now, that was focused very much on this, this concept of big data. Could you just tell us what is actually meant by this term, big data? What, what is big about big data and what makes it different to the kind of data people have been used to dealing with or, or using in the past? It's a term that some economists got a bit shirty about because, you know, we like to think we've been using data yeah. for a long time and some of that's quite big as well. 
the, some of the longitudinal data sets, for instance, or the micro data sets on businesses, they're, they're pretty big. But it really is a different order of magnitude in terms of scale for big data. And it's also pulling together different sources of data. So you're talking about many millions of records and, and potentially linked by individual or possibly you know, some other kind of data record. So the scale is different and the statistical processes run on big data are different. Although actually the first thing that happens is that the dimensionality of the big data sets get, gets reduced by some of the techniques. But the key difference is that you can't really do the classic causal inference that we do in economics and our medium-sized data on these big data sets. Ma machine learning systems are black box systems, if you like, and they're giving you statistical patterns, statistical correlations over time. So I think that's what I would pick out as the big, dif the big difference. Hmm. You get a much um, bigger terrain to look at, but there are limitations in what you can use it for because you can't do that kind of causal inference. So if I'm if I'm understanding this right, there's basically there's two dimensions here. There's one which is an increase in the amount of data that's being collected. So this would be referring to the kind of information that's collected on, say, consumers through various platforms that they use or mobile phones, that sort of thing. There's the scale of data in that sense. But then you've also got the application to that data of these big processing techniques like machine learning, algorithms, AI, these sorts of things. Is that is that the way to think about it? That, that's that's how I think about it. And, you know, when you're talking about scale, it's really digitally recording things that people either didn't think to record previously or didn't record previously. So if you're on an e-commerce site, it isn't just what you purchase in the end. It's everything you click on in between. So yeah. the, the data trail is very large. Yeah. So that really gets to the issue that we're in a situation here where people are sort of producing data out about themselves in many of these cases, but that they're not actually aware that it's being produced as data as such. And it's called data exhaust for that reason. Yeah. You know, you're just generating it by being a person in the world, yeah. engaging yeah. with some kind of digital device. Yeah. yeah, so you are a data point <laughs> literally, <laughs> in that sense. OK, well, perhaps we can move on to thinking about why is it that economists are particularly interested in the potential sort of applications of this this big data. So certainly one of the themes that that I've picked up on is a sense that quite a lot of people believe there's potential in some of these techniques that draw on large numbers of cases, but very many data points for helping people to improve the kind of decisions that they make. So to give an example, one of our other recent speakers, we had Cass Sunstein speaking recently, and he was pointing out that in some cases, algorithms, because they use many more experiences or cases, can be less biased in the decisions that they might make than, than humans might be. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about, about that sort of, is it that economists think that there is scope to use these methods to improve decision making? And why do they think that? Well, that's interesting. You know, well, first of all, economists like snazzy new techniques so everybody's very keen to have a go but that's also true of other disciplines as well it's not not just economics and you certainly see a lot of claims about the ability to make better decisions which for me raises 
at least two questions. One is you need to be very clear what you mean by better mm. and what's the objective function that you're getting your machine learning system to optimize for. Mm. And that raises some big challenges because they can't always be codified very explicitly or you might have a mix of different objectives that you want. So at a minimum, you're going to need to think about how to weight them together and some of them might conflict, which is often the case in real life decision making anyway. And the other question is really about the extent to which you can generalize from a big data set, because there's a temptation to think, well, this is huge, so I can do much more with it. But that doesn't make it any more likely that it's going to have validity in other contexts. And in fact, mm -hmm. there's a danger that if you mush in too much data, you're actually going to get all kinds of overfitting and spurious correlations. So I think my concern, one of my concerns about this whole territory is exactly that. You, you, you can't do the causal inference and it's very atheoretic. It's what we would call in economics vulnerable to the Lucas critique, you know, that yep. if the structural parameters underneath it change, yep. then any inferences you make or decisions you make are not going mm. to be valid. So there's huge enthusiasm for it across disciplines. I, I, mm. But I would like people to think more carefully about what they're doing and what deductions they're making. Well, I think it's certainly, as you say, it's not just economics. I've noticed in political science, a lot of people are very keen on, on these sorts of ideas and the use of these kind of data sets. And as you say, there's a tendency towards kind of atheoretical thinking where people seem to be just looking for, through these machine learning devices, brute correlations between things. And, and theory is almost a, an afterthought, which is 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 quite strange, really, that Social scientists are almost, you know, looking for theory-free <laughs> forms of science. And it may be the case that there are all these fantastic opportunities. I'm, I'm sure yeah. there are, but we're not going to be able to take advantage of them unless we do some of this thinking about mm. you know, what what is the underlying theory. Yeah. So yeah, over over excitement. I wonder, could you, I mean, you mentioned it that the, in the previous comment there, the idea that the machine learning systems are sort of black boxes. So could you say something about what role does, you know, human decision making play in actually designing the machine learning system or the algorithmic system, whatever it may be, at that sort of first stage? I mean, I think that's something, it sounds obvious, but 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 to me, it's something that's quite frequently missed, that human input isn't completely removed from these systems that they are dependent on someone conceptualizing some potential parameters or ideas when they actually design the system in the first place. Well, that's absolutely the case and something that we're seeing come up in the debate that's going on about large language models that's that are all, all the rage at the moment. And the human input comes in, in many ways in the data that you put into your big data because there's selection going on there. What do you measure? What do you not measure? What's missing from that? So to what extent is the data that you're using a representation of everything that matters in the world? What, what's the regret function or the objective function that's designed by humans? And what kinds of tasks are you setting the machine learning systems? Innovation of any kind has a direction. And are the systems being used in areas where we know that they will create positive social value, they'll augment what humans do, or is it straightforward replacement or not paying attention to things that matter to human beings? 
So thinking about the incentive alignment between the people who are operating and designing the systems and the people who are affected by them, thinking about what's the impact likely to be on people's lives, and those kinds of questions seem pretty important at this stage, and particularly with these new powerful language prediction models. Well, well thinking about that, I thinking there seems to be a lot of potential for these, the use of these techniques or the way they're spoken about to actually affect the way people perceive themselves. So I was thinking of one of the examples that Cass Sunstein gave when he spoke to us was the notion that in certain cases, algorithms outperform, or so he was suggesting, judges in deciding who should be released on bail before they, before they go to trial. And I mean, two things struck me about that. One, you know, would people feel comfortable in handing over a decision to a machine about whether people should be released on bail or not? But also, if they if they did actually feel comfortable about that, would it affect how they see themselves? I mean, would would, would the way a judge sees themselves be affected by the fact that they know that machines are going to be used in this capacity in many instances? would expect that people who are professional decision makers, be it mm. doctors or judges, would be quite resentful about yeah. being overridden, as it were, by, by machine systems. And it does raise some quite profound questions about what you think a good outcome is. And, and I guess in Cass Sunstein's case, he was talking about the pure recidivism rate. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. interesting work by Sendel Mullenathan and his co-authors about the different conceptions of justice that are served by minimising a recidivism rate. Yeah. And and they can differ. You know, if your outcome is something easily quantifiable, like who reoffends, mm. that's one thing. If the outcome you want is a just society, then that's a much more complicated kind of objective and not necessarily served by a, a, you know, a straightforward algorithm of that kind. Hmm. So is a suggestion there that there's a danger that sort of big data is a kind of ethics free zone that we need to be thinking, you, you know, if people think if people are looking in this sort of mechanical way at the way data might be used, they're actually ignoring the context within which it's used and the effects that that might have. Is that the point that you're making there? So I think the point, yes, in a way, I mean, the point is that what the systems do is something that ha it's addressing something that can be quantified mm. and a lot of the things that we care about in policy decision making are not things that can easily be quantified i mean you can think of it in a way as parallel to the debate about is a single number like gdp a good measure of progress mm. in society mm. and of course it's not so if you optimize for gdp growth you get all kinds of side effects that are not welcome like climate change and I, I think it's a similar parallel you can you can optimize for something that you can measure but that might not be all that you really want or even you you know you might regret yeah. some of the decisions that get made if, on that basis and mm -hmm. this is you know this is a, a known problem in in, comp in computer science and in machine learning and yet um, the systems continue to develop incredibly rapidly with nobody thinking about what to do about this known problem I mean, I think I, I think I agree with that that point very much. But I, I think wouldn't that that kind of argument I think would apply to any kind of large scale aggregation, wouldn't it? So I mean, it, it's certainly conceivable that 
someone could use the same kind of big data sets to try to arrive at some aggregate notion of what justice requires or some other objective that people are trying to achieve but you would they would still be subject to this problem that there's all kinds of things being aggregated there in that measure that might actually be incommensurable yeah. that you may be taking away from what what is really going on and that doesn't just apply to to maximizing gdp it could apply to maximizing justice maximizing any other sort of aggregate concept that you're that you're thinking about yeah, you're right. And it's a, it's a kind of fundamental dilemma, I think. I was really struck by reading Elizabeth Anderson's book on value and ethics and economics. Yeah. where She talks about the fact that what we want is in terms of value is inherently multidimensional. And yet mm. governments have to make go no go decisions. So it, it happens everywhere. But but Cass Sunstein has this nice concept himself of incompletely theorised agreements where you might have two completely different philosophical notions of what the aim is and yeah. yet in politics you can get a zone of agreement about doing specific things so one of the examples that he gives is exactly justice one person might favor retribution one person might favor rehabilitation but they can agree on a five-year sentence for something yeah yeah so that that's quite similar to actually Rawls's idea of an overlapping consensus in some areas so people may not converge on something for the same reason, but they do converge on some kind of some kind of agreement. Exactly. And we call it fudge, which is a bit derogatory in politics, but yeah. you know, in a democracy where you've got conflicts of interest, yeah. it's a useful thing. Absolutely. Okay. So I mean this is I, I, there aren't there aren't hard and fast answers to these questions, and I don't it's not fair to expect you to to give an answer to it. But what role do you think? there is what positive role do you think from from your research in this area so far what positive role do you think there is from using these techniques what do you think their advantages are and then perhaps we can you know get more into the disadvantages but what do you think the advantages are actually for some of these these big data methods they clearly can spot things that humans can't spot and there are many areas where we've already started to see some of the potential medical diagnostics or spotting fraud, enabling banks to spot fraud. So when the incentives are aligned, I think it's pretty straightforward to say these are a, you know, a good addition to our decision-making toolkit. Other areas, I suppose it's, it's less clear. And I, I'm most concerned, I think, about areas where the decision-maker and the person affected have very different, or possibly even opposing incentives. And it has a big effect on people's lives. So decisions about benefit payments or decisions in the criminal justice system, particularly things like facial recognition, where the systems have not been evaluated well, and there seem to be all kinds of miscarriages of justice going on in, in, in that territory. But, you know, it's, so we're in a position where we want to get advantage, take advantage of the potential and, and yet still have to think about all of these, these major pitfalls. The pandemic gives us some other really good use cases, I suppose, and the ability to join up different kinds of data, which then brought together the economists and behavioural scientists and epidemiologists a little bit into the pandemic to start thinking in that interdisciplinary way about, about policy changes. And, you know, that, that too was obviously really useful. So I don't want to sound too negative about them. I think there is an awful lot of potential. And we're going to see a lot of startups created as well based on these new large language models 
that will deliver some fantastic services. And, you know, you pick up your, your smartphone and think about all of the incredibly useful apps that save time, provide entertainment, save money and so on. So the value people are getting out of the whole digital revolution is is enormous and actually not very well measured, which is one of my areas of, of research. So it's just it feels a bit out of control at the moment, I suppose, because we're relying on a handful of very large, very powerful extraterritorial companies whose decision makers are from a narrow, pretty narrow social base. And they're having a huge impact on or potentially having a huge impact on people's lives. So the kind of governance questions around that seem quite profound. Well, just thinking of what you were saying there, I, I was thinking that it seems that some of the debate around this kind of parallels discussions when thinking about environmental risks of the precautionary principle. So we can see that there may be benefits from using these techniques, but there are also risks. The problem is, how do you find out what the benefits are or what they could be unless you're actually willing to experiment with them? So you've got to be willing, perhaps even in cases like the criminal justice system, I don't know where we maybe particularly feel uncomfortable about them. We're not going to be able to find out whether they can give us what we may want unless we're willing to try them out in some at least limited sense. Would that be fair? That's a really good point. Absolutely. And I think there may, may be something interesting thinking about how other technologies have or have not been accepted. The, the, the GM Foods was an example where it's kind of pressed ahead before the social consent, the public consent was in place. And there are other examples like embryology, for instance, where there was a long public debate before uh, the scientists were given the go ahead. You know, it's the Warnock Commission here in the UK, which actually set the pattern for governance of the technology around the world. So it points me towards thinking about uh, early evaluation, transparency, and the governance and the trustworthiness of the mm. institutions that control these models. Mm. So it's certainly be important in these cases to let people know that <laughs> they're yeah. kind of being experimented on potentially. Yeah, I mean, um, I think one basic thing seems to say, you know, you must inform people if they are talking to a bot or if this yeah. decision is being taken algorithmically. That yeah. minimum transparency must be must be required. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, thinking back again to to economics, I think one of the concerns might be that in some ways these techniques can, they could induce a sort of sense of hubris, which arguably we've seen in the last 20 years, both in, say, financial markets, if people in those markets feel sort of so empowered by these techniques that they become these mythical masters of the universe, but also with regulators as well. If regulators believe that they've got all this data and therefore they have confidence in decisions which maybe no one should have, again, this can be leading into to all sorts of unanticipated terrains. Yes, well, it's back to James Scott's high modernism, but with knobs on this time. Yeah. And the idea that you can categorise everybody, classify everything in ways that correspond to the data that you have and and then just let it run seems as it seems like that, like there will be some pitfalls in there along along the way. OK, so what are, what are the kind of areas where I think some people would say 
the kind of issues that you might raise as being disadvantages or weaknesses in the use of these kind of techniques at the moment are things that over time, as the technology progresses, as we're allowed, if we're allowed to experiment with it, could be progressively resolved or, or ameliorated. Now, as I understand, going back to the, the presentation you made, and I think actually the, the remark that you just made with regard to James Scott, you seem to be hinting at the idea that actually there's an, an element of knowledge or an aspect of the human condition here that can't even in principle be grasped by these kind of techniques, or that there's some sort of, there is some kind of limit to how far they can be can be pushed because of the very nature of human beings. Is, is that is that fair? Probably. Uh, so a lot of my work in recent years has been about measuring the economy yeah. and the sense that we are not getting good statistics to allow us to understand the digital changes that are taking place. Since Certainly since 2007, our lives have been transformed, daily lives by smartphones and mm. 5G and so on models have been completely changed and the technology is spreading rapidly but it's very hard to spot in the official economic statistics and that's because the classifications date from the post-war era so they're, they're kind of out of date and we're not collecting things like what's the volume of use of cloud computing or how many people are working in different categories of software so I, you know that's given me a, an appreciation of the difficulty of actually classifying what you might want to measure and, and the things that you that you might not want to measure or can't measure where there's a dilemma actually because we're in societies where decision making is based on things that are quantifiable it's a very powerful driver of policy decisions in, in all the advanced economies so I'm torn between wanting to measure things better so that they, they get fed into that decision making process be it anything digital or you know what's happening to biodiversity which is a, a zero at the moment and then on the other hand recognizing that there are all kinds of things that you, you just can't quantify that way and we would somehow want to be able to take them into account in in policy decision making so that's a kind of way of waffling around this and saying mm. i don't know what i think <laughs> but there's a there's a dilemma well you could also say couldn't you that perhaps in some cases it's not just that you you may not be able to quantify them, but actually the very attempt to quantify them could sort of do damage to, you know, what it is that's underlying that, that the, the, the actual goals that people have in mind. Potentially, absolutely, yes, yeah. So perhaps we can move on to thinking about a different aspect of these, these sorts of debates, which is that one worry that people have about big data is that it could potentially be a kind of tool for the exercise of social control, both by private actors, the people who who run the, you know, some of the big platforms, but also potentially by by governments as well. So, do you see this as a a serious issue, or is this something that is, you know, a bit like the genetically modified food case that you mentioned? Is it something that maybe just sort of whips up? notions of at the time people were talking about Frankenstein foods and things is, is, it, is it is it more of that kind of a scale or is there something really here that you know people should be con concerned about the control aspects of this? Mm. Well there's a, a lot in that question 
I suppose I'm less worried than some people about big tech companies because they are amassing all kinds of data about us and, and joining it up in mm. ways, but mainly to help them with marketing or selling advertising. And I ask myself really if the little vacuum cleaner in my house does figure out where the plugs are, what use is that to anybody? What what damage does it do to me? Yeah. So there's a yeah, many people are much more concerned about private surveillance. I'm more concerned about government surveillance for the obvious democratic reasons. And the issue is really about how much do you want them to join up about you? We we have all kinds of non-digital data or now also digital about ourselves that we don't mind some people knowing because it's their function to know. My doctor knows my health data and my bank manager knows my finance data. And that's OK. I just don't want them talking to each other. A lot of the digital identity systems and data systems being constructed by governments are joining up around individual records, so individuals or businesses, so that there's a synoptic view of the whole person or or the whole business in that case. And that strikes me as more troubling, because even if you have the most benign and competent government in the world, and I'm not sure many of us feel that at the moment, Do you really want somebody with potentially great power over you, power to tax, power to imprison and so on, to to know everything? And the thing that really made me start thinking about this was somebody in the civil service here talking with great pride about a programme called the Troubled Families Programme or something like that, where they had figured out how to join up data from social services and schools and police if necessary to identify families that needed particular help. Now, in a benign way, that's fantastic. If you can get coordinated services to help families, that sounds wonderful. But then I thought, well, what if you're a child in that family? How long does that tag stay with you? When you've grown up and got a job and moved on, do you still have something in the government database that says you came from a troubled family? And, you know, so what should the decay rate be? For those kinds of records should there be sunset clauses in data how much joining up should be permitted to deliver better services and how much of it then becomes troubling because it, it gives governments power they shouldn't have in a democracy I, I don't know that there are straightforward answers to those questions hmm. i mean I, I think the the other concern that people raise and again i don't know whether this is this is overblown but there's a concern or that these precisely the the kind of data you've just described being accessible about people can also be used to sort of track their behaviours on multiple other dimensions and monitor whether or not people are acting in accordance with, you know, the government's objectives. There are concerns about people being discriminated against on the grounds of their political views or the certain choices that they might make. That's a concern that lots of people here. I mean, again, I don't know whether it's a scare story, but you certainly some of the kind of quasi-conspiracy theories you hear in this area are that governments want to introduce social credit type systems and they're going to be using big data to do this kind of thing. Do you, do you think that is overblown or, or is is that a real concern? It could become a concern. It's not happening at the moment, but, hmm. you know, suppose they get enough access to data to know that you're going to the chip shop too often and it's better yeah. for your health. Yeah. You might just say, well, I'm, I'm quite like to be stroppy and this is my this is the form of rebellion that yeah. I'm undertaking you know 
so the, there's the zone of freedom, the potential zone of freedom starts to get diminished. And actually, in pre-digital life, we often had many identities anyway. So the idea that you're only one person in all circumstances isn't really isn't really very human. Hmm. Yeah, so the, the, the concern there is really about this this idea of classifications, isn't it? That 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 people that the people who are doing the classifying don't necessarily have access to the the multiple dimensions there might be to the to the kind of personality you have or what it could be potentially. I mean, one way of putting it is that you know it's sort of embedding a view from nowhere of society, except of course there's no such thing. And so, who is the someone who's claiming that that synoptic view? And what are the checks and balances? What are the governance structures around them? But but there's. Well, there's a, let's let's explore. There's a slight tension there, isn't there? Because I think one of the one of the critiques of the big data is that, in a sense, though it claims to offer a synoptic view, it can't actually offer it because there are these contextual factors that that the data itself doesn't grasp. So there is always this zone where people will be able to act in ways that the people who are running the machine learning systems or whatever they may be don't anticipate. But at the same time, I think, you know, sort of, I guess, supporting your point, there's a sense that even if these kind of techniques can't give that level of control, people still feel different in a world where people are attempting to classify them in this in this way through the use of these sorts of techniques. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There is a tension there. I, I suppose if 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 the techniques start to reduce the zone of freedom, that would be that would be the issue if you know they become in some broad sense performative yeah and, and they make society conform okay well moving on to to another set of questions you you did mention in your your presentation and also there's a some discussion of it in the the cogs and monsters book about how the the rise of these kind of technologies really requires some kind of thinking on behalf of economists about the way we think about different kinds of goods and the way we think about different systems for regulating the supply of those goods. So, you know, you mentioned that in sort of certainly conventional neoclassical economics, you've got quite clear principles that try to distinguish between private goods or public goods. And yet, these big data techniques, when we think about the kind of knowledge that they can generate or the information that they can generate, they don't actually neatly fall into any of these categories of public or private good. They're in this kind of zone of, of this gray zone, if you like. Could, could you say a little bit more about that and how the what the implications might be of, 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 of thinking about that? I'll try. So mainstream economics operates on a set of assumptions that goods have particular properties. And that includes that they are rival in consumption, so people can't use or consume the same thing at the same time. Whereas with digital technologies, obviously they're non-rival in consumption. You can lots of people can use the same thing, same data without yeah. depleting it. So that's that's a big difference. There's an assumption about a lack of externalities, absence of externalities, whereas in the data world they're pervasive, both positive and negative. So a lot of the assumptions that are made to draw the conclusions of mainstream economics simply don't hold. 
And a lot of economists will say, well, of course, we know that and we relax the assumptions. So my argument is you've got to start, you've got to tip, tip it the other way around and start in a world of non-rivalry externalities, non-linearities, increasing returns to scale, because that is absolutely pervasive in the economy now. And then you can change those assumptions. So your benchmark has to change. And it becomes a much more complicated world to analyse because you get tipping points in that kind of world. You get great build-ups build of market power. And the policy that, that then makes the policy debates more, more complex as well. It's very hard to know what to do about some of these things. So the argument in the book is, is really about the need to change the, you know, the, the benchmark, and particularly in policy economics where you know, the people in positions of great influence in the policy world did their economics degrees 10 or 15 years ago. And so to say to them, oh, well, that's OK, because we, we now do this at the frontier and we understand the problem you're saying isn't isn't very helpful. Well, maybe we could explore one one aspect of that, which is thinking about what does competition mean? in this kind of world or this kind of setting. So, I mean, my own feeling would be actually that mainstream neoclassical models of competition aren't actually even that relevant for many conventional goods. So if, if you take, you know, the sort of Schumpeterian view about the way competition works, it's it's about creative destruction. It's not about a static equilibrium where you have large numbers of buyers and sellers, none of whom can, can influence prices. It's much more a notion of innovation, rivalry, differentiation as being the way that competition operates. So if you take that view, I guess the argument would be, is it really any different in this world of networks and platforms? Is it rather that we have to understand that competition takes place on different dimensions? So, you know, you can have competition between networks and you're never, the very nature of these markets means you're never going to have anything resembling so-called perfect competition. But that doesn't mean that there isn't scope for this creative destruction to take place. Uh, yes, I, I, mean, I agree. Creative destruction is the way to think about how markets might operate competitively in the world that we're in. Yeah, I, I suppose I'd characterise it as the Schumpeterian approach forcing itself on standard competition analysis yeah. when, it, when it didn't before. I yeah. spent, I think it was eight years working as a panel member for the Competition Commission here in the UK. And the question of innovation just hardly ever came up in the evidence and the analysis that that we carried out it was done on you know not thinking about those dynamics very much at all mm. whereas in digital markets you, you have to think about that the only way google will ever not be the top search engine with 90 something percent of the market is is if somebody has a better search engine yeah and, and you know overtakes yeah. them and the the implication one of the implications for competition policy is then that pretty much any decision taken by an authority in those markets will determine who is the dominant player. So there's no neutral standpoint. Yep. And, you know, it, it then has to become a kind of less technocratic exercise. You've got to bring in other types of criteria apart from consumer welfare to think about what, what should the decision be? Which way should it go? Hmm. I mean, the, 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 I guess one of the examples I'm thinking of is was Amazon would be an example of this. I mean, when, you know, Amazon started off, they did sustain losses for many years before they became this amazing 
organization which you know supplies all the books that I've got around me or or everything else and it, it to say that they are they have monopoly power it's certainly getting at something but it, it's not accurate to say that it's a monopoly in the conventional sense because it's come about through dynamism or or innovation in in, in, in important senses yeah and it's an absolutely fantastic service yeah people people really value it obviously yeah and so you mess with that at your peril if you're a regulator mm. you know if you're going to intervene in that market you mm. you really want to make sure that you sustain benefits for consumers so it's it's, it's tricky but if we think about this, as you said, this more sort of multidimensional way of thinking about what regulation might need to involve in these cases, going back to the earlier part of the discussion about, you know, social control or issues of power, that's where it becomes very difficult because, you know, there were concerns expressed by some people during the during the pandemic and actually since then that some of these platform organisations have been using various attempts to silence people's speech, to censor conduct, to sort of monitor whether or not people will be able to use certain accounts, if they've been caught saying certain things on various platforms, you get a kind of sense that because they have this immense power, they can now exercise sort of discipline over people in dimensions of their lives, which aren't really related to the products that these people might be, be consuming. So you have that concern for private organisations exercising this power. But you also have it for regulators who might exercise the same kind of power. So we, it really seems to be the ultimate case of 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 who regulates the regulators when we're when we're when we're talking about this kind of question. You don't people won't feel comfortable in, with leaving this to for these private operators to make these decisions on their own, given the the immense power that they might wield. But equally, I think people would feel very uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, the government was running Facebook or something something like that. So, and there doesn't seem to be a way out of that that's obvious to me. I think you just expressed it very well. It's a complete quagmire, isn't it? We don't know where to go from here. And with the great step forward with GPT-3 and GPT-4 over the past few months, this has just ratcheted up immensely. And I was just reading a paper by some a serious analyst saying it's called Natural Selection Favours AIs Over Humans. There was a survey published last week or two weeks ago saying that 5% of people working on these kinds of models think there's an existential risk to humanity posed by them. Mm. So one in 20 think is there's yeah. an existence. That's a bit alarming, isn't it? It is. <laughs> So what 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 do we do about that? Yeah, I, I, I don't, don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. If that's true, it really is a really is a concern. I mean, that really would be that really would be a case for you know people who invoke, say, the precautionary principle or want what they would call a strong notion of sustainable development in environmental affairs. That they they would be using that as a justification typically for banning these techniques, or banning these. These but, models, but who would who would issue and enforce that ban is the other is the mm. other question. Mm. 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 Well, that that was something something that we haven't touched on so far is it's tempting to think of these techniques as being something that some people have control of, and they use it to try to control sort of agents who are underneath them in a sense, whether it's governments or private private companies. 
what is the sense do you have any sense that there is scope for people to use technology themselves to kind of ev evade or avoid manipulation by the actors who have got access to this technology so what i'm saying is would a sort of broader diffusion of the technology getting it to the hands of more people enable them to avoid some of these concerns it would give people techniques that could help to evade they're being monitored and tracked by some of these systems in this way. I mean, I guess that doesn't really address the issue of, well, if the AI becomes sort of better or more sophisticated than humans, we're kind of just stuck. But as long as it's being operated by other humans, then isn't there scope for people to use the technology to escape these forms of control? I don't know. It's quite hard to avoid leaving digital exhaust. Yeah. You really you know to go off grid now is very difficult. Yeah. And the people who in effect are off grid because they're in the countryside and the broadband doesn't go that far complain bitterly about it. About the fact they're not connected. <laughs> about not being connected. There's there must be something in teaching people from a very early age about how to think about what they see online and having a more sophisticated literacy about it. So my colleague here, Santa van der Linden, just has a new book out about that. And there are techniques that people can be thought can be taught. So surely, surely we should do that. But you know, the basic question is, do we want Mark Zuckerberg shaping the future of humanity on Earth? And the answer to that is probably not. Hmm. Do we want Donald Trump doing it to go back to your previous dilemma? Probably not hmm. that either. So I, I I don't know what we do now. <laughs> not going to give you a neat policy prescription. Well, that's very refreshing to hear that because people, I mean, I've not been following this space in enormous detail, but but people, many people are actually very confident in giving responses to these kind of challenges. And, and I think it's refreshing to hear someone say, well, you, they just don't know, because that's actually, that's kind of the view I have. I don't know how people can come to such firm conclusions about these these kind of issues. I almost I wonder if the answer actually lies in, in the realm of ideas, because if you think about what the machine learning models are doing, it's it's acting like an economist. They are mm. utilitarian maximizers. Mm. And maybe that's just the wrong basic design. And we need to get people thinking about mm. developing this technology in fundamentally different ways. I'm not enough of a, a computer scientist to know how to start doing that what that would look like that's mm. a conversation worth having mm. so can you tell us a little bit about what's next for, for diane coyle what are you what are you working on at the moment what are you what are you planning to to work on in the in the in the next phase i'm thinking about different aspects of the digital technologies one is the straightforward measurement question can we get better economic statistics including things like how do we think about the value of data and how do we think about the investment case for a public sector data infrastructure, the policy questions in competition policy and what sort of government data infrastructure, broadly speaking, should, should we construct? Do we need, for example, a public sector large language model that could be like CERN, but in this different area of technology? And then about, about the governance questions as well, where I'm working with some of my computer science colleagues here to think about what would make AI responsible and trustworthy, because it's it's not there yet. So it's those and it's all the same suite of suite yeah. of issues. And it's been I mean, kept me going for 26 years so far, so it can carry on. 
<laughs> Wonderful. But do you, do you get the sense that that policymakers are aware that you know there are all these potentially quite dramatic changes that might be happening because of the rapid evolution of this technology? Is this something that they're aware of and that they are sort of on top of, or is it something that is really going to hit people as a bit of a shock when it's suddenly revealed to them just how significant the implications of these technologies may be? Probably a shock, although there has been a lot in the media recently. And there are you know, some people in the official world and the political world who are incredibly well informed about the technologies, but I wouldn't say it was a majority. It's you know, on the contrary, a small minority who are really well informed. And it's not it's not high on the political agenda, is it? And it's mm. not even something that people get asked about in opinion polling, mm. public opinion polling. So it hasn't registered as a key policy issue, unlike the cost of living or or even mm. climate change. So I would guess it would take both cohort change, generational change, and and perhaps some crisis to move it up the agenda. I have heard people talking about, you know, you do hear people talking about, even in universities, you know, will chat GPT or whatever <laughs> sort of remove the need for um, lecturers in, 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 in essence, because people can just sort of, you know, have artificial teaching techniques or, or some equivalent. So there's there are concerns about job replacement. Although, I mean, my normal feeling on that would be to go back to the earlier point about creative destruction, it is just part of that process and the nature of jobs change and new jobs will replace the ones that we currently have. It's not that people are going to be made permanently unemployed by that. It's just that there would be transition problems, I guess, as we get used to our new role in the world. We don't handle the transitions well, but my, my dad and my aunties and uncles worked in cotton mills in Lancashire in the 1960s and 70s. They were pretty horrible jobs. It's a good thing they've yeah. got the machines doing yeah. those. So, the transition was awful and let's learn to deal with that better if we possibly can. But the jobs themselves, dull jobs are dull. I'm not sure you'd get lecturers to think about that in quite the same way. I don't know, maybe you could. <laughs> maybe you could. How, how would you feel about being re replaced by a, a machine in that sense? That's not a fair in question. Sense, but... <laughs> in a sense, I think it's already happened. There's all kinds yeah. of online material. Yeah. And there's also a growing body of evidence about what sticks through online and what you need face to face for. And they're different bits of knowledge. So I mm -hmm. think just like people who worked in banks stopped being people who handed out cash and became advisors, that might be the same kind of transition for people in education. But we'll find out, won't we? We will. <laughs> and on that note, I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining me today, Diane, on the on the Governance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Great.